Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is none other than my wife, Lori Bertrand. Together, Lori and I will talk about my new sermon series on Matthew's Gospel and the retractions and clarifications I'm already making just one sermon in. We'll also talk about the new women's discipleship reading group that Lori is organizing this fall and how you can join in. Later in his career, Augustine famously wrote the retractions where he went back and corrected the errors of his past. And occasionally I find myself wishing I could do something similar to go back and correct the errors and omissions of previous sermons that I've preached. That's one of the opportunities that we have on the commentary to go back over and comment on the sermon series ongoing. And this past Sunday, we started a new sermon series. We finished Zechariah, and now we have begun on the Gospel of Matthew. And so last Sunday, I preached on the genealogy that opens the book of Matthew. But in the course of doing that, I created a little bit of confusion, and I also left out some stuff that I think is interesting to think about. So I've invited onto the commentary for the first time the person who has the most experience correcting my errors, which is my wife, Lori. So Lori, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So Lori, you had a couple of questions after Sunday's service, either questions of your own or maybe questions you heard other people asking. And so I thought it'd be fun just to get you on the show and have you pose some of those questions and see if we can dig a little deeper into Matthew. And I should mention too, that Lori has an ulterior motive for being here, sort of like a celebrity on a late night talk show. Lori's actually here to promote her own activities coming up. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, but first let's go over the sermon. So, so Lori hit me with your first question on Sunday's sermon. Okay, so when you went through the genealogy, you referred to Jesus' bloodline, but the genealogy goes to Joseph and not to Mary, so it's technically not a bloodline. Right. Now, that's a good point. So I talked about the bloodline of the Savior. That was the subtitle for the sermon, and I think during the sermon, use that term bloodline multiple times. But of course, if you trace that genealogy back, you know, it starts with Abraham and goes through David, you get through Zerubbabel and eventually to Jesus, but you get to Jesus through Joseph, not Mary. And of course, Joseph Mm -hmm. isn't the physical father of Jesus because Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. So, so yeah, so let me clarify the point that I was trying to make there, and I, I did talk about this at one point during the sermon, is that this is a line of succession. So bloodline probably isn't the right way to describe that. That might be a better term to use in Luke's genealogy, where the focus is on Mary. Here in Matthew, where the focus is on Joseph, not only in the genealogy, but as we'll see in the birth narrative as well, it's it's the angels 
going to Joseph. It's Joseph having dreams. The focus here is going to be on Joseph. Here, the point is that there is a line of succession or inheritance that is passed down generation to generation. It includes the covenant promise to Abraham and to his seed or offspring, and it also includes the covenant promise of a kingdom to David and to his seed or offspring as well. And so by tracing these generations, what Matthew is establishing is that Jesus is the rightful heir to the promises of the covenant and the kingdom, and therefore he is the Messiah who was promised. So bloodline, probably not the right word to have used. (laughs) Succession or line of succession probably would have been a better term to use. But for what it's worth, that's, that's what I was getting at. Thank you. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, I have another question. Okay. On Sunday, you didn't say much about the individuals listed, including the four women. Okay. Yes. Right. Um, So there are, I think, actually five women who are listed, if we count Mary at at the end, because she's alluded Mm. to as well. And I didn't mention them specifically. In fact, I think Zerubbabel might be the only person other than... Abraham and David that we really focused on because Zerubbabel is familiar to us from our study of Zechariah. But it is an interesting thing to recognize that in this genealogy, a number of women are singled out. And scholars will say that's pretty rare for Jewish genealogies to make these references. And so we have, let's see, uh, Tamar, is one. We have Rahab. We have Bathsheba, but she's not referred to by name. She's referred to as the wife of Uriah. And we have one other one. Who am I forgetting in that list? Um, I already got Mary at the end, but uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, of course, Ruth, uh, who married Boaz, is, is the fourth. And all of those women have something interesting in common. Uh, Do you know what it is? I don't. All of those women are actually Gentiles. Mm -hmm. So all of them uh, come from outside the Jewish community and have been brought into it. So Ruth famously comes from Moab. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tamar is a Canaanite. Um, Let's see. Uh, Bathsheba, I think the implication is that she's a Hittite as well. That one comes as a surprise to me because Mm -hmm. I guess I always kind of assumed... Uriah came from the land of the Hittites, but he he married a local girl. But scholars say no, she's also a Gentile who's who's brought in. And um, who else am I? I'm I'm missing another one. But I forgot one, but it's a different one. You forgot the first one you said. No, Tamar, Rahab, Rahab. Rahab. Of course. Wow, I am getting old. Or maybe you're making me nervous just mm-hmm. looking at me, looking for answers. Um, but yeah, Rahab, of course, is is also from uh, Jericho. She's the one that uh, hides the spies. So if you think about the implications of that, um, it's not just that these women are included in this line of succession, that they are named in a way that is unusual, but it's also that the people who are named here are not uh, Jewish ethnically, right? They are brought into the covenant community from the Gentile world, from the outside. And so 
even here in the genealogy, we have this interesting hint of what's to come. So we're getting a, a flavor of Gentile inclusion in the plan of salvation. Mm. And it's hinted at when we see Gentile inclusion in the genealogy of the Savior. So much so that uh, at least one commenter I was reading referred to Jesus as the mixed race Messiah, hmm. because this is a, a striking thing to record about the origins of Jesus, emphasizing the fact that his, his descent is not just uh, Jewish, but also Gentiles. And, and I should point out, though, that these are Gentiles who've been brought in and integrated into the covenant community. So they're not like part of a, a, a second tier of God's people. They are fully inheritors of the promise by virtue of their integration into the one covenant community. So that too prefigures what we're going to see in the gospel as Gentiles are brought into the church, but not a separate church. There's not the church of the Jews and the church of the Gentiles. Both Jew and Gentile are made one in Christ. Hmm. Okay, I have one more question. Okay. You talked about the covenant and kingdom corresponding to the first two sets of the generations. Right, so like Abraham and David. Right, but what's the significance of the third of the genealogy being placed in relation to the deportation? Okay, yeah, so so we talk about Jesus as the, the son of Abraham, the son of David at the beginning, and then there's three sets of 14 generations, like 14, 14, mm -hmm. 14. And we're kind of going Abraham to David, and then David to the deportation, and then the deportation to Jesus. So it's interesting, I guess, that you have, like, if you're if you're reeling off kind of the significant names, you've got Abraham, David, Jesus, and then deportation as, <laughs> as the other marker. And I think that's another clue. I mean, obviously, that's the nature of the history of Israel, that the, the physical kingdom founded and, and sort of reaching its its golden age under David, eventually falls apart. And the people are carried off into captivity. They return from that exile. The temple is rebuilt in the days of Zechariah. And then we jump forward to Jesus. But the deportation has a significance spiritually. I think mm -hmm. it, it's another hint, let's say, because the exile just like the exile in Egypt, is seen as symbolic of our captivity to sin. And so here, I think that the emphasis on the deportation, it, it's sort of like the, the zigzag or the detour, right, in the, in the line, because we don't just go from the covenant promise and the kingdom promise to their fulfillment. We have this detour into exile. And exile is a punishment for sin. And so here you're getting like another hint about salvation, but this time it's not the, the Jews and Gentiles coming together aspect. It's the identifying the problem. Like, why do you need salvation? Because of sin. Because of the way that sin has derailed our history, so to speak. And that becomes clearer in the next part of the chapter, because in the next part of the chapter, the angel tells Joseph, you will call him Jesus 
for he will save his people from their sin and actually names the problem that, that Jesus has come to resolve. So I think it's fascinating to see that in these little details, even the genealogy contains these hints of what's to come. So, Lori, you have an ulterior motive in being here, and I want to talk about that so that you get your money's worth for appearing (laughs) on the commentary. Uh, You've got a book club coming up, and we just want to talk a little bit about how to get involved in that and what book you'll be reading. Uh, For those who don't know, one of the things Lori has organized uh, the last couple of years have been these women's discipleship reading groups where the women have read uh, books together and then discussed them. And the books that you've chosen, Lori, are always interesting because in one way or another, they always have like an interesting theological and, and often redemptive historical focus. So let me ask you a question. What do you think it is that has led you to choose books like that? Like, what do you think the value of of reading books like that together is? I think that the books that I've chosen have all been foundational in helping us understand the story of God and of us, beginning at Genesis and going all the way through the Bible, so that we are getting a fuller understanding of our faith, but also of theology and of covenant and of the main themes in scripture. Yeah. So like in the past, you've read books like uh, God Dwells With Us, Mm -hmm. which has that temple theme. Yeah. God Dwells Among Us. Sorry. God Dwells Among Us. That book, I think, really illustrates the, let's say, the unity of the Bible and the plan of salvation through the way that the temple comes back like time and again, generation after generation. Uh, You also looked at Edmund Clowney's book on the Ten Commandments and how Jesus kind of transforms uh, transforms those commandments. And and similarly, that has a quality of emphasizing the connection, right, between Old Testament and New Testament. So what's the book that you've chosen for the next reading group? I feel like we're going back to sort of basics a little bit. We're doing... Tim Keller's The Prodigal God. It's probably a little bit shorter than the other books that we've done, but I thought it would be nice almost to get a fresh plunge into this great story of the prodigal son Mm -hmm. um, and the elder brother and the father. I think a lot of people, although they're familiar with it, haven't actually read it. I've had several people say, oh, yes, I have a copy. I don't know that I actually read it. It's understandable, I think, that people would have the book and be familiar with it, but not have read it because that Mm -hmm. like sermon of Keller's and that concept, the way he reads the story of the prodigal son has become so famous. Right. Uh, I feel like I've heard that sermon preached many times, uh, usually not by Tim Keller, but by other people who are 
influenced by him. And I think it's fair to say that the prodigal God really has shaped who we are as a church fundamentally because it's in that reading of the story of the prodigal that you get not only the idea of the 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 younger brother as a prodigal profligate sinner but also the older brother as a moralistic sinner equally in need right. of some reconciliation and one of our i guess founding insights was that although we live in a very churched area mm-hmm. We also live in a very moralistic era where a lot of people um, talk about grace, but actually practice a kind of Mm self-righteousness. And this book does a great job, I think, of illustrating the gap, you know, between being a a good religious person Mm -hmm. and being someone actually acquainted with the grace of Jesus Christ. And so even though it is small... I'm excited to see what the impact will be because I feel like reading this book might actually help people understand better what it is we're always talking about at Grace. Mm-hmm. Yes. The way that he is able to talk about, especially the older brother, people can see that in themselves. It's a way to put your finger on what's wrong sometimes. Yeah. Um, And he does it in such a gentle way that you want to find that beam in your own eye. So it kind of helps you diagnose where you're at. Exactly. See yourself in the mirror a little bit. So the group, if I wanted to participate in it, what would I need to do? On the website, graceforsufalls.org, we have under discipleship, we have women's discipleship, and you can go there and register. If you need a book, we can get a book for you. We have a quick registration form online there, but also a survey to find out what day might work best for you. So it would be great if you go and fill that out, and we'll be announcing uh, when we're going to start the study Uh, We'll announce that probably in the next week. Okay, so after you get survey results, as people sign up, then you can make a decision about when the best time to schedule is, and then you'll let people know. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in reading Tim Keller's The Prodigal God with some other women from the church, check that out and fill out the survey so that we have a good idea of what works best for your schedule. Uh, Lori, thanks for joining me. Thanks for your questions and we look forward to seeing how the book discussion goes thank you that's all the time we have for now i already have so many things to thank Lori for and now we've just added one more to the list so thank you Lori, and thank you for listening we hope you'll join us next time in the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.